All righty. Well, let's get rolling. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We started a new series a couple week ago, weeks ago called Meeting Jesus at the Feast. And as I said, if you missed last week, you definitely want to go back and listen because we're going to build upon that. As we get into this feast, there's seven feasts that Israel celebrates every year. And the first one we talked about was Passover. And so uh, if you remember, we, we went through the calendar change here. I've got this back up here. That originally the month of Tishri was the first, but they're in the Exodus as they're getting ready to, to jump ship and start the Passover. God says, I want you to change. This will be the first of the month, which was the month of the Nisan. And as you look at those, again, you see that they coordinate. It's not like they just change. It just started over. Now, this is one where it was seven, okay? Um, sometimes that gets a little bit confusing and whatnot. But, but the bottom line is there was a lot of things that God was doing. And remember, everything is in types and shadows. These things were written down for our learning that we could look back on, according to Paul. And so in doing that, we were able to go back and say, okay, what is going on in this? Because all of it plays a major part into what we're seeing. And the feasts are no different. They're extremely prophetic. Extremely prophetic. And this is one of the many reasons that jo Jesus rode into Jerusalem crying because they did not recognize their Messiah, because there were so many things that were pointing to him that they should have picked up on, and they didn't. They chose not to. But if you remember, as they were preparing for Passover, on the 10th of Nisan, the 10th day of the month, they would choose the lamb, and they would bring him into the house, and that lamb had to be perfect, had to have absolutely no spots, had to have no blemishes. And they would keep that lamb in the house for four days in this early time, and they would create this bond with it. That way, when it came time to actually sacrifice the lamb, it was tough. I mean, it was... As I, I, I quipped last week, it's like bringing home a puppy and then four days later, killing it, right? And then eating it in some countries. Do they eat that in the Philippines? They, well, they eat baby duck eggs, so that wouldn't surprise me. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, if you guys get a chance to go to the Philippines, you can taste Fluffy and see how, he, how good he is, so... But they would bring him in, they would keep him, and they're examining him the whole time until the 14th of Nisan, and that is the day of Passover. And so in this time frame, at 3 p.m., they would kill him, and they would kill the lamb and, and all of that, and then put him in the oven. And this is all the stuff that's pointing to Christ, and we went through all of that. And I don't want to rehash a bunch of that stuff today, but one of the things I want to point out is that in the initial Passover, when they cut the neck of that lamb, when they bled, they put the blood in a basin, they were to do what? They were grab some hyssop, and it said that they were to strike the lintel and the doorpost. And I showed you that picture last week. I didn't put it up this week, but, but to where that blood is, if you're striking it, and that's the key word in that is that it wasn't like they had a paintbrush, they were just painting this on, that they struck it. And of course, that blood is going to run, it's going to hiss up, it's just kind of a weed type thing, it's just a big bunch of stuff. Um, but in Exodus 20, 12, 22, this is what it says, and you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of the house until morning. As long as they did this, they were safe as long as they stayed in the house because the Lord would pass over them, which is where Passover comes from. But the key there wasn't the sacrifice and doing everything. It wasn't the choosing of the lamb, even if the lamb was perfect. It wasn't just killing the lamb, and it also wasn't consuming the lamb. It was the applying of the blood that made the difference. If you didn't apply the blood, you did everything else right. It didn't matter because it was the blood being applied that was, would make God pass over. It's no different than us today. You can be baptized, you can go to church your entire life, you can memorize the Bible from cover to cover. If you've never applied the blood of Jesus in your life, then it's all for naught. You are not protected because that is what it is, receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But when we look at this, we see two things there. We see the hyssop, 
which is significant. And we see the word strike there. Now, I'll be honest with you guys, and this is sometimes how the Lord works. As I was walking up here last week, that word strike was not on my radar. But as I'm walking around the corner, it said, strike the lentil. I felt the Lord say that. So as I'm reading this to you, that is when that jumped off the page to me. And, it's, and praise the Lord for that. But I'll tell you what else, and i got to give Evan credit for this, because as I walk back there, he's like, I've never noticed that before. And I said, well, I am somewhat hyper-analytical. I tend to over-examine things. He's like, you know, I wonder if that strike has anything to do with Jesus. I was like, huh, well, let's look at that. So I went and looked up the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word there is nakah. Now, this, I don't ask me why my computer is being weird. That's the word. This is, means to smite, not to smite. Every time I type smite, it would reverse the I and the T, and there was nothing I could do. So, yes, I do know how to spell. I did go to public school. It was in Auburn. So forgive me for that. But I don't know what the deal is. But this is how this thing is used every time. Attacked, attacks, beat, beat down, beaten, beaten, blows, bother, cast, clap, clap, so on. You get it, right? That is not typical for the word, paint some blood on your doorpost. That's significant, right? And so then it got me thinking. It's like, I wonder where else that word might be used because this thing is like normal. And so I was drawn to Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53 and verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Do you think it's any coincidence that the very same word in Exodus 12 that says strike is the same word that's used there, smitten, when referring to our Savior. Absolutely not. Evan gets credit for that. Everybody turn around, wave at Evan, say, nice work, Evan, you're on top of things. He's doing a good job, isn't he? Keeping us, keeping us out of trouble here. So praise the Lord for that. But it's just amazing. Again, it's just one more thing that shows how powerful this whole thing, this imagery is that God is doing. And then we jumped into Luke chapter 22 when we get into the, what we call the Last Supper. In verse 20, it says, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup and the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. There are two cups that are drank during Passover. There are two cups drank after Passover. This is the third cup, and this is the one that Jesus said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until all is fulfilled, because all is not fulfilled. That third cup, as he just says here, is the new covenant with his blood, the blood of the Lamb. We watch this all land in John chapter 19 and verse 28. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is the Passover. This is Nisan 14. This is what's going on. They took the hyssop. That third cup is the cup that he didn't drink until all is fulfilled. It was fulfilled. The spotless, perfect lamb died for us. And that is amazing when you start to break this down. So we're in the Passover week, if you will, because there are three feasts that are coincided together, right? You've got Passover, then you go immediately into unleavened bread, and you go into first fruit. So Unleavened bread begins on the 15th of Nisan. Nisan, yeah. You see how it is here. These three correspond. Then you're going to have a 50-day gap to Pentecost, and then these are in the fall, and we'll get to those later. Okay? But what would happen is that at the end of the day on the 14th of Nisan, they would begin to eat 
the meal. They would start just before the new day shifted over. Remember, that's about 6 o'clock because their days, their times run a little bit different. But it would shift over into the unleavened bread. And at that point, they were to eat nothing. Now, I'm nothing but unleavened bread. No leaven in the house whatsoever. And we'll get into this. Now, I want to show something. I want to explain something here a little bit because in the passages of John, it, it gets a little bit confusing because there's the Sabbath day, which is the sixth day of the week. It was Saturday. Okay? It still is Saturday. The Sabbath has never changed contrary to popular belief. I just had this conversation yesterday with somebody. She's like, when did the Sabbath change? I said, it never changed. And trying to explain it. So Sunday is not the Sabbath. It is the day that we worship. You worship we should worship God every day. So it doesn't matter. If people get together on Saturday to do church, great. They get together on Sunday to do church, great. I don't care if they get together at, at, at Monday night at 7 o'clock. Whatever. Pick a day. Get together. Worship God every day. Okay. Off my soapbox. Here we go. Sabbath is six day a week. But in the passage of John, there's something that said a high Sabbath. In John chapter 19, verse 31, it says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. You see, going out of the Passover, out of the 14th of Nisan, into the day of unleavened bread is what they call a high Sabbath. In Greek, it is the Shabbaton. Okay, which just means a day of rest because during that week they do no work. It's straight up party, seven days long, right? But, but that's what this is. And so it gets a little confusing. And this is a lot of the reason why the confusion is that Jesus died on a Friday and rose on a Sunday. Now, you don't have to have, you know, an advanced mathematics degree to figure out Friday to Sunday is not three days and three nights. It doesn't work, Okay. So this high Sabbath is what's coming into play here, and that is what's going on. As they go into that, it was a high Sabbath. In other words, they have the normal weekly Sabbath, and then they have an extra one because of this feast. You guys with me? Making sense? Okay. So let's look at the Feast of Unleavened Bread for a moment. In Leviticus chapter 23, it kind of breaks this down for us. This is a short version. Uh, there are longer ones, but this gives us an overview of what is going on. Leviticus chapter 23, we'll start in verse 4. These are the feasts of the Lord. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So they're kind of sandwiching. These, these days off, essentially. In between, they can work, but those two days, they don't. Now, when we look at unleavened bread, the Hebrew name for this feast, I have it up there because I'm going to butcher this prepared, Hag Hamatzat, right? Janet made the, or the comment this morning that she said, you know, I believe that the first language ever spoken was Hebrew and that someday we'll all speak it again. I hope they have a class when we get to heaven because I need it desperately. So this Hag Hamatzah, you got to get that real flimmy thing going. But it means the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's emphasizing the absolute necessity, there art no leaven in thou houseth. None, zero, zilch. Nothing is going on here with leaven. The practice in the Bible is that during this time, they eat nothing with leaven. The Jews were free to eat just anything allowable underneath the Mosaic law, but no leaven. I can't stress that enough. 
So they would take this here. There would be two things that they would observe in this feed. First of all, obviously, the no leaven for seven days. Secondly, that they would have all these different foods that were prepared, and they were kind of special occasion-type foods. But, again, nothing leaven. So as an example, there's this thing. I've seen this before. Uh, there's a Jewish pancake, and they take different broken pieces of, of unleavened bread, and they mix it with scrambled eggs. Everybody I've talked to that's tried this because they do these at these different uh, festivals that they do, they say it's actually pretty good. It doesn't sound good to me, but they say it's pretty good. So all of that. But even if they were making a sandwich, right, a BLT like a good Jew would, right, bacon, lettuce, that's a kosher joke, guys. Keep up. All right, fine. No BLTs. Roast beef, whatever. But it would be on unleavened bread. I mean, they, they don't fool around with this. And so how this all begins is the ceremony which should start. Is it would start with the searching and removing of leaven from the house. The entire, all of it had to be taken care of. It's this search for unleavened bread that would take place. In Hebrew, here's another word for it. You see it up there? Do I have it up there? Oh, did I not put that up there? Okay, I'm going to pronounce this. Here we go. Bedekat Hametz. Bedekat hametz. It's this search for unleavened bread. This is what they're doing. They go through the house. So this actually begins prior to Passover itself starting. And the wife of the home would go in and she would completely clean the house uh, top to bottom and removes all the leaven with the exception of about 10 small pieces. They would leave them uh, in there. And you'll see part of this at the Seder meal. And on the night before Passover, the father would grab the kids and they're going to do a final search. And they would grab four things, a candle, a wooden spoon, a feather, and a linen cloth. And so the house would be completely dark except for this candlelight. And they would take that candle around with the kids and they would begin to search all through the house. Now, it wasn't like the mom hid it under the bed or in somebody's shoe or anything like that. They kind of had a pretty good idea where because it was ceremonial is what it was. But they would take that light and once they found it, they would set that candle down. And then they would take the feather and they would sweep those crumbs, those pieces of bread, that leaven, into the wooden spoon. From there, they would take it out of the wooden spoon. They can't, you don't touch it. You do not touch it. And you put it in the linen cloth. They wrap it up, and then they would throw that cloth outside. And then the next morning, they would take it to their synagogue or the temple or wherever, and they would burn that cloth. They're burning the leaven, okay? Now, that's a lot. You actually see some of this next Sunday night, okay? So it'll make more sense then. But when we get, begin to look at these different things, what is leaven when we look at it as a type in the Bible? It's sin, right? It is the removal of sin from your household. This is part of the Passover celebration. The candle itself, what illuminates sin in a person's life? The Word of God, right? So that's the only light in this house, and yet it finds the sin, then it takes the feather. Now, what do you think that feather signifies? It's the Holy Spirit, right? It puts it in that wooden spoon, okay? So the light of the Word illuminates the sin that's in our life, and the Holy Spirit removes it. You guys see how that works? That's what's going on here. It's very symbolic. Now, the spoon itself, made of wood, what do you think that is? It's the cross. Very good. Again, what do you see? So then they would take that, and they would put it in that thing, and they would throw it out outside. Now, our sin was put on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, right? The one with no sin. Our sin was put upon him. But when Jesus died, what did they do after they pulled him down? They wrapped him in linen, right? And so, again, leaven is used symbolically in the scriptures of sin. We know that. But when we talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, its fulfillment in this is through Jesus' sinless blood. 
Because again, you can't remove sin from someone who has no sin. Sin was placed upon him symbolically, and then it was wrapped. It was all destroyed, if you will. Just like that. And so while the Passover fulfilled, was fulfilled by the actual death of Jesus, the unleavened bread was his sinless blood. There was no leaven in him. It was put on him by the Father, yours and mine. And so he was offered up as a sacrifice. He sheds his sinless blood. On the moment his blood was spilled outside his body, the fulfillment of the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread has taken place. It is now done. Now, this was to begin on the 15th day of the month, which is also the very day that Jesus died on the cross. Why well, he died on the 14th, but they're putting him away, if you see what I'm saying, on the cross. And so they shed, shedding of his innocent blood. But you see kind of things pointing back to this from the writings of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6, it says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Jesus, our Passover, he took the punishment for our sins, and he removed our leaven. And that is what this is all pointing to. You guys see how this fulfillment in Jesus is taking place. We saw it with the Passover last week. Passover is way more involved in this portion of it. That's why we're doing two of these together this week. So it goes into all of this, that sin is removed, but that's not where it stops. Because now we've got to get back into these feasts here. Because the one that comes after this is first fruits. Now, these are things that, that you and I have lost. It's been lost in the church history through, throughout the years because we just don't understand it. We read that passively. But, I mean, even in 1 Corinthians 5, we've probably read that a thousand times. But when you're keeping that feast in mind and how Jesus fulfilled it, it gives new light to what is taking place in the Scripture. And the Feast of first fruit is the next part of Leviticus chapter 23. It starts in verse 9. In verse 9, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, to be accepted on your behalf. And on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day, when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an epaph. And... A fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire with the Lord for a sweet aroma. And its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling. So we got the Passover, the 14th of Nisan. You've got unleavened bread beginning on the 15th of Nisan. But first fruit starts the day after the regular Sabbath, which would be the Sunday, which would be the 17th of Nisan, right? 14 to 15, 15 to 16, 16 to 17. On the 17th, now we are in what we would call first fruits. Now this one goes by, it's got really three different names, but the first one is the Hebrew name Rashit. Did I put that up there? Oh, Lord, have mercy. Thank you. Ketzjevichim, yeah, that one, which means the first fruits of your harvest. But it's also called the Feast of the Omer because of a special Jewish ceremony that has to do with the counting of the Omer. Um, the Omer is a measure of barley. This is the barley harvest that we're dealing with, but it's a way that they count the day leading, days that leading up to the Pentecost. Okay, and we'll get all in that when we get into Pentecost here in a couple of weeks. The third thing is called is the Feast of the Wave Sheaf, which 
it, it was obligatory. They, they have to do this. It was a, a, how they did it. They would take that omer, they would wave it up before the Lord, and then it would be offered. So the biblical practice concern, there are four things that we look at when we see this thing going on. First, it was the first fruits of the barley and the grain. The principle of first fruits is simply that if you give God what is first, before you know how good the rest of it is, you're trusting in Him that A, that the rest of the harvest will be good, and B, that that land will produce once again. I mean, when you take that first fruit of a lamb as an example, that firstborn, you don't know if that lamb will ever have another baby. You don't know. And that is the principle, that we are trusting God. By me giving this to you, I am trusting you that everything else is to got your hand upon it. That's the same principle that tithing has. There is not a command that you have to tithe. But there's a principle there that when we give to God our first, the 10%, that first tenth, that the 90% has his hand upon it, and he is the one that brings the increase, and he is the one that we trust for all of that. So that's what is going on first of all. Second, there would be this one sheet, they would bring this in. The third thing they would do, it was the day after the Sabbath, which is the first day of the week, what we call Sunday. And so that is the day that this is taking, for, uh, taking place on. And then the last thing is that this was kind of the beginning of a two-month spring harvest period. It would go into all, all of this time where they would start harvesting. And so the principle behind first fruits is always that we're giving God our best. And here we see that this grain offering is being set aside. But what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, actually, there's a passage that you probably read a hundred times if you've ever been to an Easter service. I know you've read it a hundred times, but I'm going to show you how Jesus fulfills this principle of first fruits and, and, and show you a passage of Scripture perhaps that maybe didn't make a lot of sense because it's forward-looking in a way. So let's turn over to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27 and verse 50. This is the time that Jesus is on the cross. Okay, we've kind of jumped around to the different parts of the Gospels that talk about him being on the cross. This is at the end. And in verse 50, it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. There he's, he's died. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, this can be confusing, guys, because we've got the moment that Jesus dies on the cross. And then it's forward-looking because it says that the graves were open, and when he resurrected, they resurrected. But he's not actually resurrected yet because you've got a whole other chapter and a half in the book of Matthew before you get to the resurrection part. But you have that. It says that the earthquake, the veil was torn, the rocks split or were rent or however your version says it, and that the graves were opened. And then later, many bodies of the saints who had died are going to be raised from the grave at his resurrection. And then they're going to go into the holy city, which would be Jerusalem. They're going to appear to everybody. And then, but then you go back to the moment that's going on where these two centurions who were guarding Jesus said, okay, this is a little freaky. This guy had to be the son of God, right? I mean, you've got the veil being torn. It's dark. The earth's shaking. Rocks are splitting. Something weird is going on. So this is detailing something that is going to happen three days from this moment. But what is going on here? Well, here's what would happen. 
during this time at the Passover, once the Passover was complete, the lambs were killed. The priests, who would, they would plant barley on the side of the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley. They go over to the Valley of Ashes, and they planted the barley on the first day of the eighth moon. And then that's why these things would always rotate a little bit. Right across from the Temple Mount, they would go across and they would inspect the barley at that point because it was the time of the harvest. So right after the Passover sacrifice, the high priest would cry out, it is finished. And we talked about that last week. As soon as the lamb died, he would say, it is finished, which is the same thing that Jesus said on the cross. Then from there, they would go out to where this barley was, where they planted, and they would go and they were marking them. They would take a cord and they would put it around 10 omers of barley, marking them that these are the ones that are going to be harvested three days later as our first fruit offering to the Lord. Okay, so as soon as that's all done, they go over. At the end of the weekly Sabbath, just as the sun would set, the priests would go over to these marked omers. And they would look at them. And this was a public event. They would, they would invite everybody to come over and say, come and watch this. And many would. They would go and watch this time and watch what they were doing. And so what would happen is one of the priests would kind of by running the ship. And, and, and the other ones are there prepared. And there was this whole ritual that they, they would do. And so the one priest would yell out, has the sun set? And the other priest would answer, yes, the sun is set. And they said, would you harvest the barley? And they say, yes, we will harvest the barley. And he says, with the sickle. And they would respond, yes, with the sickle. And he say, will you put it in this basket? And he say, yes, we will put it in this basket. And at that moment, they would reap the ten omers publicly. This was a public demonstration of the first fruit. Then from there, they would take it and they would process all of this stuff. And it would be uh, made into cakes and the different offerings and the different things that go into all of that. But the first fruit offering itself would not be offered in the temple until the following morning. So they would work through the night the next morning that they would do this. Now, during all of this, the high priest himself would go into the temple to make the offerings. And he would be in the temple mount during this whole three-day phase. So as soon as he says it is finished, the other priests go across. But he goes into the temple mount, and they were in, these, in the temple mount, there was these mini mikvah poles specifically for the priests. And a mikvah is a spiritual, or a, a cleansing, it was a physical thing, but it, it's pointing to a spiritual application of that. And so he would set himself apart during, from the rest of the world for these three days. He would mikvah, he would stay cleansed, he had to be ceremonially cleansed. Anything, any leaven touched him, he's not clean, he's got to start over. Anything from the outside world that would come upon him during this time, he would have to uh, re cleanse himself and all of that so for three days and three nights he would stay in this so when the earthquakes and the rocks broke and the graves opened the first fruits were those people they were marked just like when they went and marked those 10 omers of barley you guys seeing how these these two things are it's all about the ceremony now they would understand that reading it because they're in that world you and i aren't so this is the stuff that we would miss and so, just like when they would wrap that cord around those ten different omers, they're choosing the best for God, the first fruit, those graves were marked, they were opened, but they're not going to raise until three days later. And it would be done publicly. And when, they, when he arose, they arose and appeared to many in Jerusalem. This is the first fruit. This was a public ceremony that took place. Now, the following morning, this is why it was still dark, that Mary came to the grave of Jesus, and he said, don't touch me, because I've not yet ascended to my Father in heaven. 
And he said he'd been in the heart of the earth. Well, here's the thing, which means the tomb. I mean, it's literally what that, that means. But there were these things that were right in the side of Mount Moriah. At the highest peak there, and he was in this tomb is where they're saying that the grave was. I mean, there's arguments over whether they found the grave or not or anything like that. But he would be in seclusion, the high priest would be, for three days and three nights. And now he's going to go and offer that first fruit harvest. Now, here's Jesus. When he arose, they arose. Then he goes up to his Father in heaven. He presents the saints, if you will, to the Father as the first fruit offering. This is a picture of what's going on. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all dies, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under, under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. You see, it's the principle that is going on, that Jesus was our first fruit offer. The day he resurrected is the same day that they cut that barley. And they would go, and he would go, and he would present those saints to the Father as the first fruit offering, which is why he told his mother, don't touch me. I've not, he's mikvahed. He's clean. He's got to go take care of that. That's what that is. That's what that's going on. But actually, if you go back a little bit, you see this typified in somebody named Noah. Because what is it about the resurrection? What did Paul say about the resurrection? If it wasn't for the resurrection, then your faith is futile. If Jesus didn't really rise from the grave, then it doesn't matter. But he did, and we saw him, and there's all these witnesses and all of this other stuff. But the resurrection itself is... Uh, is what makes our religion, if you will, different than anything else. Because first of all, our God died for us, but death couldn't hold him. He rose from the dead. Supernatural event. It's the same thing. When we talk about somebody being water baptized, it's the sign of the new covenant that when they go into the water, it's like Jesus going into the grave, and when they come out, they're made new. There's nothing magical about it, no special powers. It's a symbol of something that you are making publicly. It's the first fruit. It's new life. It's a new beginning. The old is gone, the new has come. It's that metamorphosis that he doesn't just change who you are or just make things better. He completely gives you a new spirit, a new heart. Everything is new. And when you look into the Old Testament, you can actually see something that typifies this. In Genesis chapter 8, in verse 1, this is the story of Noah. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained. And the, and the waters receded continually from the earth. And the end, at the end of the 150 days, the water decreased. The ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the Mount of Ararat. What was the seventh month originally? Nisan. Wasn't changed till later. On the 17th day, what day did Jesus resurrect? The day, Feast of First Fruits, the 17th. What is that typifying? You had sin in the earth and a whole lot of other stuff, which we ain't going to get into today, going on. And God brought judgment. But just like later, that Passover lamb, that blood that protected them, God said, if you'll build this ark, 
then I will protect you, you and your, your descendants. There's eight of them that are on there, plus two of every animal. And they get up on the ark. And then it says, God said, come in to the ark. What does that imply? God's in the ark. He didn't say go in. He said come in. And he protected them. And he goes, and then they come to rest on the 17th of Nisan, the very day that Jesus resurrected, the day of ultimately going to be the Passover, or excuse me, the festival of first fruits. And when he walks out, it's all new. Okay. Spread around the earth, replenish it, fill it again, right? It's the same thing with us, guys. When we walk out, the death, the destruction, all of that, the stuff that, that has been going on, when we give our lives to Christ, all of that was fulfilled in the first fruits offering. And so because of that, it's a new beginning for us, just like it was for Noah, just like it was for them. So you see the Passover in Christ's death. You see unleavened bread in his, uh, his sinless blood. There was no leaven in him. And then, of course, the resurrection, you see the first fruits. Now, keep all of this in mind as we read Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm going to read into chapter 10. But this is powerful because it's explaining all of this. But Christ, starting in verse 11, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promises of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of the necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled the blood both with the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission." Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now... Once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifice which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, they would, would they not have been ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. 
Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. But that... By that will he, we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offerings repeatedly, offers repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he was perfected forever, those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering to sin. What was the offering? It was the Passover lamb that was given each and every year. When it talks about the blood and bulls and goats as the day of atonement, which we'll get to. When he would go in, the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and he would cleanse everything ritually. But Jesus was the greatest sacrifice. He's the perfect offerer and perfect offering, gave his own life and sacrificed his own blood and took it in there, not into the tabernacle made by hands, but into the holy things, cleansing it once for all to become a mediator for us. And in doing that, he becomes our Passover lamb. He took upon himself all the leaven of the world, all of it. That if we would receive him as our Passover lamb, then we are made clean and we are being sanctified daily with the sign of the Holy Spirit being in us. And those fruits that we were talking about this morning in Bible study are just simply something that happens. It's the essence of a person who's been changed. It's not something that you strive to do. It is something about who you are and you have been changed. And then the first fruits itself is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which is the hope of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, it said, it's that Jesus died according to the scripture, that he was buried and rose again according to the scriptures that is the gospel and all of this has been played out for thousands of years right in front of you and I and everybody else and we don't see it you see it's Jesus is our Passover lamb he is our unleavened bread he is our first he is our all in all he is all you need he's all that you ever can have He's all that you should desire. And yet all of these other things is, is things that we chase after. And so when it talks about removing the leaven and getting the things out of your life, this is what that's talking about. This is talking about getting, preparing yourself so that we can be ceremonially cleansed before God. And there's only one way to do that. That is with the blood of Jesus washing us clean, being sanctified by the one who is the mediator of that new covenant, that third cup of Passover. This is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is good. He's powerful. And you guys think about this as we get ready to go into Easter. Keep that in mind. As you read these passages, keep this stuff in mind. And then next Sunday night, man, you guys are going to, if you've never been to one, it is powerful. I encourage you to be here. Don't miss out. It will. It is just so inspiring and, and just amazing to watch that because Brian is going to take it from beginning to end of every little detail that they do. It's, it's so powerful. So when we look at these feasts, guys, we see how Jesus fulfilled the first three on his first year. We see that in his life and his death and resurrection. But then we get into Pentecost. 
which is a whole nother animal, and we'll discuss that in depth. And then we're going to go into the fall holidays, because if these were fulfilled when he came, then these must be fulfilled yet when he comes. And so I'm going to show you guys how all of that works. Um, man, the Word of God is powerful. It's so powerful. We just take for granted everything that's in there. 